0: Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. So if you have gotten to know my family um, at all 10 months we've been here, you've probably found out that we have a dog. And our dog, she is an Australian Shepherd. And if you know anything about the Australian Shepherd breed, you know that she is just a ball of energy, just will, <laughs> will not stop. So, it, and for our, so for our sanities, it's essential that we give her exercise and good walks. And I would say generally, I don't mind too much taking her out for evening strolls. And the biggest reason I don't mind doing that going out at night, so much is that when, because just the skies here are amazing. I uh, just, I've been amazed when you look up that the views of a st- on a cloudless night, the how the d- displays of the stars and the planets and the moon are just magnificent. And I've always thought, too, I think Brevard County should really kind of try to trademark something about some of these views for the sky. So I was thinking maybe like the galactic coast or the space or star view beach country or something. It's still a work in progress. But if you have a better idea, I'd love to hear it. Now, one thing I do, I just love about looking up at the sky is how amazing it is how big the universe is, how it 's filled with so many stars and constellations and planets, and to think that God is sovereign over every square inch of that, that really is something that just uh, really makes us uh, think about the power of God now it would be impossible for us to count every star in the universe. you know, just go start with one and point two and you know by three hundred we 're all kind of bored, but it'd be amazing. Or, so it's, that's, don't try it, you have better things to do. But it's even more amazing sometimes to think about how the amount of emptiness in space far outmeasures the space that's filled. Um, you know, the nothingness measure, is outmeasured by the filled space by a wide margin. And I think we can find a very similar parallel in our own lives as well. When we think about how there's Christians in the world... Think about your school, or your workplace, or the gym, or a sporting event, or the theater. In almost every setting that you are in, if you are a Christian, you are either alone or you are in the minority. I'm sure if you go to public school, you feel like an odd one out very quickly. I've talked to students before who say in a class of 30, they may be one or two of the Christians in the room. I think if if you're in their job, I'm sure you can relate as well when you go to the break room Oftentimes, the conversations, you have very little to relate to, just because it's about a whole different lifestyle and world. So we have to ask ourselves, when we're living in this sort of context so regularly, when we go to these places you know, every day, how, like, we often wonder, am I shining? Or better, another way to, to kind of last Christianese word, how does it, how do we know if we're making a difference in the culture and society that we're living in that's so predisposed against me and everything that I believe, everything I stand for. We kind of wonder too, like, does it even matter if I'm living for Jesus or not? If, it's, if the whole culture is gone, what's the point? And I think a great place for us to turn to think about these sort of questions is what we just read a moment ago. That's 1 John chapter 2. Now, if you've ever read the Gospel of John or 1st or 2nd, 3rd John, you've probably noticed there's a theme of light versus darkness. And John loved using this sort of imagery because you cannot, there's, the difference between the light and darkness is extreme. There's no mistaking the difference of light and darkness. And he loved to use this imagery because light and darkness links well to the connection that can be found in the lives of a Christian and a non-Christian because a Christian and a non-Christian have fundamental differences in their core values and their core beliefs. And these differences should be reflected in the way that each lives their lives. If a non-Christian believes one thing, they should live to reflect that. And just the same as a Christian. If they say, I believe this, they need to live in a way that reflects that belief. So what what John is saying, getting us to think about this light and darkness, he's saying that a Christian, when he's living in a way that is according to the way that God has intended us to live, when we live according to how Scripture teaches us, that Christian will shine in this world in a bright and noticeable way. That the Christian will in some ways seem like a bright star in this dark universe, in this night sky. So I have a couple goals for us this morning um, as we go through this message, kind of, and the goals are dependent on where you are in your spiritual journey. All right, so if, first, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to be able to walk away this morning with a clear sense if you're following him well. I think all of us, if we've been a Christian for any t- period of time, we always wonder, am I really living like Jesus taught? Am I living in the way that I should? So that, one of the goals we're going to try to accomplish this morning is how are we doing in that? I want us to kind of better understand some of the markers, some of the milestones that God has given us to help keep us on track as we seek to follow him each and every day. And I also want us to, to think about what does it practically looks like to shine in a dark world? And where sometimes we, in you know, the sermons and messages, we kind of use a lot of kind of weird lingo. Like, so just push, put aside the lingo for a minute. What we're talking about is what does it practically look like to follow Jesus? So that's what, if you are a Christian, those are our goals for this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I also have a couple goals for you as well. Not homework, you don't have to go home and write a paper for me, but I do have a little work for us. So if you are not a Christian, I want you to hold those of us who are Christians accountable. Right? I want you to keep us in check as we are saying we're and call us out when we're not living in the ways that God, that we should be. One of the most common critiques over the course of history about Christians is that well, Christians are hypocrites. And I'm asking you today, if you're not a Christian, call us out if we are being hypocritical. We need to hear that sometimes. But I also ask that you give us a little grace with it, right? Um, we are not perfect, and if you meet a Christian who someday says, hey, I'm perfect, I'm sorry, but you've just met a liar, because no Christian in today's world is a perfect person, The the life of a Christian is a life of striving each and every day to become more like Jesus. So again, so have grace with us, but I do want you to help us keep us us accountable. And while you're doing that, while you're kind of grading us on how we're doing, I want you to also consider how Jesus, who is God himself, lived a perfect life. How he entered into the darkness of this world, of this universe, and the filth of this world, and how he shone like the sun, sun with a U, not an O. And as we consider the work of Jesus, I really want to challenge you, the non-Christian, to think about how Christ's work applies to your life just as much as it applies to the life of a Christian. So here, we have, we have some work to do, but I think we're gonna be able... I'm tagging on together. So what, is it, what does it look like for a Christian to shine in the world? How can we shine like Jesus? And I believe that the text that we read gives us five different glowing indicators. If you're an artist, you can draw a star and you get five different points, right? So first thing, first glowing indicator, first point of our stars, as Christians, we shine when we follow the commands that God has given us. John opens the section, he opens in verse 7 with a sort of paradox. He says, first, beloved, uh, John, he was was a lover. He loved his people he was writing to, so he always used very endearing terms. And this time he chose beloved. He said, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Now, if you're scratching your head a little bit, you're not alone. It's kind of like, wait, you said not, there's an old, but there's not an old, and it's new. It's, like, it's a little confusing. So what we have to ask is, like, what is, what is John saying here? What is he getting at? And I think for us to answer that, we need to start with that, figure out what is that old commandment. We've got to identify what the old is. And if you were to ask a Hebrew in the days of John's, like, when he was writing this letter, who was, like, if you asked one of those readers what they would say, their minds would have instantly gone to the Shema. In the Shema, it's kind of a, it's a fun word to say, say five times fast. It's a foundational set of verses that's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord, with, Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And Deuteronomy 6 said that the Shema was supposed to be taught to their children. And then later in chapter 6, he goes, God commands that the Shema should be bound to their, you know, their arms and also between their eyes as constant reminders of what this foundation was. And that's why if, you, if you've ever seen, there's certain groups of Jews that still do this, that they walk around, they have a the little black box in the middle of their forehead. You know? And the point, and then they also have kind of some ribbon on, around their arms. And what, they are, what they're doing is they're trying to live out Deuteronomy 6. They're trying to keep this as a constant reminder because if you put something right here, I don't care who you are, you're not going to be able to forget it very well. And, and you'll definitely get enough looks about it too. So I was like, wait, what's, what's one of that guy? But, and that's actually called a philandry. Don't ask me how to spell philandry. It's a, it's a weird word. But the philandry is the, kind of that little black box that goes, goes between your eyes. So this is that—that's the old commandment, the Shema—to love the Lord your God, and then love your um, love your neighbor as well. So it was to—it was given by the Lord to live, love the Lord with your whole self, and to teach your children, your friends, and your relatives to do the same. Now John wasn't saying that that was going away. He wasn't saying, Shema, see you later. He's still here. So we shouldn't view this language of old commandment as if like it's an old draft, right? that you know, was pretty good. God kind of got it half right, but now we're going to go to the new, new edition. Now what God, John was saying is that we, this command should be viewed through the lens of Jesus' work. And to help us get there, I think we should actually go back to John's first gospel, John 15, where he kind of talks, Jesus is speaking about this. John 15, 10 through 12 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you." So how do we read the old commandment? How do we live out the Shema? Well, John tells us in chapter 15 of, his, of the gospel that we live it out by living like Jesus, by living in obedience to the Father and loving others as Christ has loved us. Now, notice too, if, you're, now if you line up the Shema with Jesus' the commandment here, these aren't contradicting one another. They're not just like canceling one out for the new. What it does is it's expanding on this old commandment, and it helps us understand even better what it looks like and it sounds like to follow God. If you want to know what God's like, read about Jesus. It's very clear. Um, we have four different accounts that all say the same. So that's what the Shema is saying. Like it's been come to fruition through the work of Jesus. And as John 15 goes on to say, what we just read is that our joy is actually going to be full when we follow the law of God. And for some of us, like that doesn't, like the laws and rules that don't, that doesn't bring me joy, it just brings brings me frustrations, especially when you're going on the highway and somebody just doesn't move ahead, right? But John says, 15 says that the the law brings us joy because the law of God is not like the faulty laws of our lands. We've had a lot of different laws over history, and some of them have not been so good. I think, I believe in Chicago, it's still also illegal to tie your elephant to a telephone pole. So if you're in Chicago, don't bring your elephant or find a parking spot. Uh, So we have like some weird rules like that, but then we have some also horrible rules throughout history too. Slavery, for one, was Legal for a long, long time. We've had some really faulty laws, and those don't bring us any sorts of joy. Especially if I want to park my elephant on First Street. The law of God also doesn't simply lead us to simple moral life adjustments. We don't just follow the law because, like, okay, don't murder. Okay, I'm not going to do that, even though this guy makes me angry. Like, I'm not going to do it. It's going to make that's a better life for me. No, what the law of God does is that it leads to permanent life-altering heart transformations which is an act that can only be rightfully classified as miracles. The law of God does something to our hearts and to our lives that changes forever. And it, that's, that's how we can get full joy out of it, because it's something that's different um, than some, a simple law that man can make, which it will change us. God does something through his law, and it actually gives us joy and structure and purpose to our lives. And in this text as well, John reminds us that God never changes and neither does his law. Again, that's why it's so important to compare the old law to the new law or the new, old commandment to the new is that they're not going against each you. They're, they're all, it's the same law, just in a different kind of a skin in a way. So we can take great comfort in the fact that God doesn't change. His law doesn't change. And that's why we can fully trust in him. If you're here this morning wondering, how can I trust God? You don't have to look any further than the fact that God doesn't change in his law and what he expects of us and wants for our lives. That's never going to change. That's why we can trust him in amazing ways. All right, that was our first star point. Now we go to our second. Right, the second way that we can shine in this world is by loving authentically. And this love, this authentic love, needs to start in the church itself. You know, one of the most wonderful things about a church body— is, a, is the diversity in it. Think about how special it is that on a Sunday morning, we have a sanctuary, we have a gym filled with people from all different neighborhoods, different schools, different backgrounds, ethnicities, cultures, socioeconomic statuses. On a small scale, every Sunday morning, we have a picture of what heaven's gonna look like. In, and we can see it with our visible eyes, we can hear it, and we can, um, we can just experience it every single week. That's an amazing thing. And yet... When you get a big group of people all in the same room together, it doesn't take long for us to rub each other the wrong way, all right? You know, so-and-so talks too much, they dress really funky, she never stops talking about CrossFit and wants me to go, I don't want to go, I've told you three times already. And if we're not careful, we can start to resent people because they annoy us. And then if we go in further, that resentment quickly turns into hatred, and that's not a good thing, right? It's a really, it's a good thing that God does not look at us in this way. It's a blessing that God doesn't love us because he's expecting that love to be reciprocated or to be repeated. Scripture teaches us that while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our evil deeds, God died for us. And God chose to do the furthest thing from hatred, he chose to love us. And that's what he's calling us to do in a a major way. God's telling us that we're supposed to love someone even if we don't think he or she is lovable. We're supposed to care for someone who may, do, may never do anything kind for us in, at any time in return. We're supposed to look past traits, we're supposed to look past mannerisms that may get on our nerves to ve- and view this person as a fellow image bearer and a child of God. And that has to start in the church context because we can't go out into the world and we can't claim to love others if that's not taking place in the church itself. Early in church history, one of the most important characteristics, the things that was noteworthy things about the church is the way that they care for their members and the people in the community. That attracted people in a a major way, because the church, they provided for people. They provided financially, um, Know, they provided food, kind of like what we were doing in our food pantry. They provided in so many different ways. The church, they were the ones taking care of the orphans and the widows. In those days, you have the city wall, and the right outside of it, you had a trash heap where they just burned it. And it was just constantly burning because they were trying to get rid of the garbage. And what, ha- what happened oftentimes, so peep families, if they said, I don't really want this baby anymore, they would take this baby and put it on this burning trash heap to die. Or in. If, it, and if the baby didn't die, a lot of times these babies would get snatched up, get sold as slaves, as prostitutes, just horrific things. The Christians, though, they were the ones rescuing these babies from these burning trash heaps. They were saving them from a life, of, from either death or a horrific life. The church, they were the ones taking care of the undesirables of that day and age. They were taking the pay, poor, care of the poor, the sick, the needy, uh, the people leperated. Leop- the church was the one stepping up and taking that role when no one else would. Now, I want to just have us imagine for a moment, what if the church acted like that intentionally today? Imagine the impact that would be felt in the community if the church, and in our cities if the church was serving in that way. And here at Covenant Church, we, that's the sort of impact that we want to make. We want to make a first century church impact in our world, in our community. And actually, we've been very intentional about it, even the way we shape, have shaped some of our church values around this. If you go through, and you can, you can find these, um, some of our values, two of them actually directly connect to this kind of idea. One, we've said that we will care for people genuinely, in a world of apathy and selfishness, we care for the deepest needs of people. And then a second value that goes very similar is that we are also seeking to connect intentionally. In a world of isolation and loneliness, we are deliberately inviting people to experience gospel, gospel community with us. We're inviting people to be part of our fold and our family and those values and some of these thoughts, that's kind of one of the reasons why we spent so much time and energy on this new building project, because we want to create a space that's going to serve as a hub in our community so we can effectively minister in the context that God has placed our church. Now, there is a reason that God has our church right here in the middle of Lockmar. Right now, it's harder to get. It's easier to buy a kidney than get a house in Lock Mar. And yeah, we have a we have a, <laughs> we have a place in our we are we have our location to where we can build a building right in this community in this neighborhood. God has work for us to do in this context in this neighborhood. And friends, we need to be praying that Covenant Church is able to be faithful to this mission that He's given to us. We need to be praying regularly. What is it, Lord, that you want for our church right here and right now? And so we need to be faithful to this mission, but we need to start by loving each other well, and by sharing that love with our neighbors around us. I read a story this past week about this boy who it was a number of years ago. How every morning he would get up, get himself dressed, and walk out the door by himself with his Bible in hand. He walked to church, and mind you, this wasn't a short walk. This is I don't know the exact distance, but it was a ways past. And every Sunday he would do this by himself, and as he made his walk, he passed several churches on the way there. And again, every Sunday he would do this. Well, there was one Sunday where this guy who was staying outside of his church, and he had he, he noticed every week that this guy was, this kid was passing by. So he went, one week he stopped him and says, like, well, you know, where, where is he going every Sunday? And the boy answered, well, he went to, to D.L. Moody's church over in Chicago. And he said, like, is just down the road. And this guy said, well, you know, some of that church is a long ways away. Why is it that you walk so far and pass so many churches on the way there? And without missing a beat, this kid said, well, you see, sir, they have a way of loving a fellow over there. That's the kind of statement that we want our church to be known for. To be a church that loves every man, every woman, every child who walks through the door, doesn't matter their life circumstances or situation, they will be loved from the moment they walk in. And I, I can speak from personal experience, too. My family, we've been here about 10 months now, and we have been incredibly blessed by our time here. Um, thank you for loving my wife well. Thank you for letting her use your gifts. Um, she's a fantastic sing- singer. I think you know that, but, like, it's been a blessing that she's been able to sing and serve at our church. Uh, thank you for loving and caring for my boys, my crazy twin toddlers who are screaming all the time. Um, every time we drive past the church, they say, oh, my church. It's, just, it's a sweet thing. It brings joy to my heart. I uh, thank you for that. And thank you for putting up with me, too. I'm not an easy person to deal with, but so I appreciate you showing me a little love. Um, but you all have done a fantastic job loving us. I can't really stress that enough. And I just really want to encourage us, encourage you to keep loving authentically every single family, every individual that walks through the door. If you guys do love, us, love them a fraction of how you loved us, they will feel welcome and happy every, single t- every time they walk through those doors. So we've got two star points. We've got a ways to go still, sorry. A third way that this passage calls us to shine is by regularly thanking our Savior. Now, verse 12 may be one of my favorites in this passage. It says, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I love this verse because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell, sufficiently packed in one line. Let's just, I want to read that one more time. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know, we're called, again, little children. This is not just directed to children. He's not calling us little kids as a kind of an insult. Again, this is one of his endearing terms. But he's saying that this, this, using this phrase little children demonstrates the significance of how beautiful it is to be called a child of the king of the universe. The fact that God has adopted us Just like how the early Christians, you know, they were pulling babies off those burning trash heaps to save them and to bring them into their family. God has saved us from the burning trash heaps of hell. And he's given us new names. He's given us, uh, he's called us his own. and He's actually currently preparing a place for us in heaven. Where we're not called simply welcome to guest in heaven, but we are called heirs. We're called his, his sons and his daughters. And that's possible because our sins have been forgiven. Notice in this verse, there's no mention of a forgivable sin limit before grace runs out. You're like, oh, that was one too many, sorry. No, no mention of that. There's no disclaimer about certain sins being too heinous. You're like, oh, you can't do this and can't do this. Like, there's no mention of that. It simply says that our sins have been forgiven. And I recognize there's some people this morning who are fighting in more, enormous amounts of guilt for what they have done because they think that there's no way that God could ever forgive them, or that maybe God could forgive most things, but there's just one or two things that just they're too, they've crossed the line. And this this kind of this guilt just reminds us of this internal battle that we fight daily, as and we recognize that there is an incredible power that comes from these internal battles. And these internal battles, they can blind us to the blessings that God has promised his people. So if you feel some sort of burden, if you feel like your heart is just, there's so much guilt holding you back from God, let this verse, verse 12, just comfort your soul. Because what it reminds us is that every one of us is a sinner, but we serve a God who is greater than our sins. A God who forgives because he's so gracious and he's overly loving. This verse reminds us that God has lived a perfect life because life, he has died on the cross and rose from the dead. And because he's done all those things, we can have confidence that our sins are not only paid for, but they're completely forgiven. Friends, this is a God that we should be running to, to be bringing our burdens to, to be confessing our sins to, to be thanking and to be serving daily. So if you are a Christian, make it a regular practice to thank God for all that he has done. Because we must never let the miracle of salvation become an afterthought to us. Because if we act unimpressed by the work that Christ has done for us, the work that he's done on the cross and by raising from the grave, then the unbeliever is never gonna see much value for why to seek out Jesus. If it doesn't matter to us, why should it matter to them? So if we wanna truly shine, if we truly wanna make an impact on their culture and the world around us, we need to show them what Christ has done for us and how he has done the same for me. We should never grow tired of sharing our testimony because it's a testimony is a story of God's grace in our lives, how he's worked and transformed us and saved us. That, we should never grow tired of sharing that. And sometimes our stories, the way we share with other people, that can be a huge um, fun, monumental event or story that changes someone else's life. So never grow tired of your story. All right, fourth way, fourth point of our star that we can shine for Christ in this world is by actively seeking to grow in our knowledge of him. In verses 13 and 14, we have the same phrase that's repeated. If you were kind of reading through, it's like, why does he keep saying the same thing over? Is it like a misprint or something? No, this is intentional. He says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, just as he's not calling, he's not calling us all little kids, he's not calling us all grandpas either. He's, it's a, Father is a loving, endearing term. Actually, grandfathers, I love you as well. But, um, no offense. But just, so just as that title, the f- term fathers is what it's referring to is mature Christians. And two, if you, if, and one thing I want to, quick disclaimer too, if you notice it's because like children, this says young men and young fathers, that doesn't mean this only applies to men. This is applying, like the fathers in this case includes women, like mothers and fathers as well. That's just kind of using the one word, right? Um, it's not saying this is only for guys, women, I'm sorry, take your, you know, just, close your ears for all. Now, this applies to all, every one of us. And what this term fathers is saying, so again, you see the kind of transition. You go from children to young men to fathers. What he's saying by fathers is these are mature Christians, those who have been walking with the Lord for some time, and they can clearly articulate some truths of the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean they know everything. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, they could tell you you know, just mem- have the Bible memorized by heart. And actually a person of this maturity level would be very quick to tell you that they have a lot to learn. But what they, we d- kind of one major point that we think about this, in this case is that they have a deep and personal relationship with God. And it sounds very simple, and I don't want to make it sound too simple, but this relationship comes by reading the word and in prayer and biblical community. Just think about how significant it is that we have the literal word of God that's been given to us in words that we can understand, that God has given us analogies, he's given us parables, he's given us images and descriptions of visions for all for our understanding. Now, it's not like God needs to flesh this out for himself. Like, these things are given to us. Like, that's even why John uses this imagery of light and darkness, because we can understand the difference between light and dark. I tried to have Nathan say, turn all the lights off, but he said no, so we're not gonna do that analogy. But, but, so God has given us his literal word to tell us about himself. He's plainly told us those things. He's told us about himself. He's told us about eternal things, how to fight temptations against the spiritual forces. He's given us all this in succinct word, and yet, the Bible tends to be one of the, mo- the books that collects the most dust on our shelves. If we're being honest with ourselves, the Bible app tends to be the most under the, underutilized app on our phones. Now, I cringe every time I see this on social media. I'm sure you've seen as well, but have you ever seen a picture of the phone and it says, like, God's calling? And it's like, are you going to answer yes or no? Like, and it's like this big decision. I hate that. Like, it's just super cheesy. But it does kind of hit on a nerve for us as well, to think about, are we neglecting to read God's word? To it's a bad thing for us to act nonchalantly about how the master of the universe is speaking directly to us and into our lives, and yet we're like, eh, not a big deal. Like, that is a big deal, that God's speaking to us in that way. And so we have, the, we have Scripture that we underutilize, and prayer is our opportunity to freely approach the throne of God and to bring our petitions and our needs to Him. Oftentimes that gets overlooked as well. I really want to stress this morning, like, take and make time for prayer. If you talk to anyone that can apply, can, can, relate to this category of this kind of spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers. If you talk to anyone that meets that description or that category, they will gladly share with you how they've been blessed by the tool and the gift that is prayer, how they have benefited immensely from speaking to their Savior on a regular basis. So if you're in this room this morning and you feel distant from God, you feel stagnant in your spiritual journey, I just want to say, start by reading, your, reading the Bible and praying regularly. Study the Bible. Join a Bible study. Get together with a couple guys, a couple girls, and keep, who are going to keep you accountable so you can deeply study. You need to, like, we need to have people around us to kind of really learn more from Scripture. Sad to say, a lot of times cults start when it's just one person's think their opinion about scripture is the most important. And you know, we need each other to sharpen one another, to learn from each other, to study with people. There's a wonderful thing that comes when studying together. Don't mishear me say like, don't read your scripture by yourself. You're gonna start a cult. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to like, so personal time is very important, but also make sure you're supplementing with time spent with other believers and praying and studying scripture with them. And then also too, just dedicate set time each day to pray. Now, for some of you though, this simplistic method will be, starts to feel very legalistic. Uh, you may have tried to pray every hour, and then you know read your Bible every morning for th- five minutes, and yet that seems to have made no difference in your spiritual journey, your spiritual walk. And sometimes it actually, if you keep have done this for a while, maybe it starts to feel like a chore. That's why I'm not prescribing that everyone you know, goes home today and says you need to pray four times a day and then read three chapters at night before you go to bed. Because there's going to be some days where you can only muster two-sentence prayer before collapsing into bed. Or the verse of the day on your apps, only app is the only verse that you're going to get to in the course of the day. God knows what's on, going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in our lives. He's not ign- ignorant to that. And He's not going to rain down fire on us if we've missed two days in our Bible reading challenge we need to just rest in the fact that even the most disorganized prayer, while we're putting away groceries and the kids are screaming in the living room, that prayer is heard by God. And that even a one verse a day can make a significant impact on our lives. So I just want you to go home and think about what is a good time for me to pray? What is a good time for me to read? And then try to just make that intentional while recognizing that God is gracious, God is loving, and if you don't have your seven chapters read before next week, it's gonna be all right. But if you want to truly grow as a Christian, we need to use these two, we need to be in the prayer, and we need to be reading the scripture. Our final star points for us this morning is that that Christians, we can shine by overcoming the evil one. I'm sure many of you kind of have summarized the evil one, this refers to Satan, this refers to the deceiver, We read scripture that he's described as destroyer who is compared to a roaring lion who's prowling the earth seeking to kill. And yet it's this powerful being, this roaring lion who's trying to destroy us that God says we can overcome, that we can withstand his attacks, that we can extinguish his flaming darts that are meant to kill us. We can even withstand temptations that he sends our ways. And so we ask ourselves, like, okay, he says we can do this. How can we do this? And he says, not by your own strength. You know, if you say, like, wake up this morning, he's like, I'm going to conquer every temptation, probably by noon you've broken, you've been falling into problems. So we're not supposed to overcome these by our own strength. Uh, We're not going to do it by our own self-determination, our own self-willpower, not even by an amazing prayer life. That's not the end-all answer for how we overcome sin and temptation and the evil one. How we overcome the evil one is that the very spirit of God dwells within us. And because our God, our God is greater than the evil one. There's been a false teaching that's made its rounds throughout history that says that God and Satan are somehow equals, that they're essentially two sides of a coin, they're kind of the yin and the yang. But if we are students of scripture, that could not be further from the truth. God has no equal and Satan is secondary to him in every single way. So while we should recognize that he does have power and we need to be vigilant of him, we don't need to actually fear him because we are heldly fast in the hands of our savior. And there's nothing that Satan or his minions can do to take us from his place. You now Paul, he echoes this thought in a very familiar passage to many of us in Romans chapter eight, uh, 37 through 39, which says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors that through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anyone else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're truly going to shine in this world because we stand in it not as those who have been defeated, but as conquerors, because of all that we, of all what it is that we are in Christ Jesus, that sin has been defeated, and there's death that no longer has its sting. If we truly believe this, then the way that we speak and the way that we act will reflect that, that this belief. And people will inevitably ask us in the, in the break room or in the cafeteria or in my classroom, they'll ask us, why is it that we have hope? Why are you different? And we'll be able to tell them that it's because it's what God, has come, like God has come into the world, that he's entered into darkness and he's brought, a, brought about a great light. And his command that he's given to us is that we are supposed to reflect that light and shine just as he does in this dark world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your commands because they do amazing transformative works in our lives. We recognize that and we confess that many times we neglect the tools that you've given to us, that we neglect the word that you've spoken that pours into our lives and our hearts, and yet that's something that we um, tend to push off. And sometimes we think, oh, I don't have any time to pray, so it's just not worth praying at all, Lord. But Convict us of that and draw us to yourself because you are a God who is worth being drawn to, who is worth being running to, to confess our sins, to bring our burdens to, because you are a God of love who cares so much for us. Just thank you for this church body. Thank you for each and every member of it who you've gifted in unique ways. And help us to love this Lockmar neighborhood and the surrounding city, just to share with them the love of Jesus in a way that... You know, people wanna be a part of this and just recognize that there's something different about these people because they are living for something else. Help us to be your light this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.